I can do things that wet without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful wild world of theme park design, that is. You've just set course for another amazing adventure of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and riding the Green River with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer for Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Which way is the river taking us today, Mel? Well, Freddie, like they say on the open sea, here there be monsters. And our guest today is one of the only guys nice enough to tame them. I'm talking about my good <laughs> friend and co-conspirator on a slate of upcoming theme park projects. None other than Themed Entertainment Association master, Adam Bizark. His storied career from Walt Disney Imagineering to Landmark Entertainment Group allowed him the opportunity to conceive and design some pretty epic monstrous IP attractions like Jurassic Park The Ride, The Jaws Ride, and Terminator 2 3D for Universal. Uh, More recently for WDI, he uh, kind of had a little bit to do with the beloved Illuminations Nighttime Spectacular, as well as being the show writer for Pirates of the Caribbean Battle for Sunken Treasure at Shanghai Disneyland, generally considered the pinnacle of our industry so far so it's not often you get to dig deep into conversation with somebody like adam so we really took advantage of the time all righty folks keep your hands arms feet and legs inside the boat because this episode is about to leave the dock hit it sam So Mel, the the role of creative director or 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 the the person in charge of a of a big project, the creative direction of a big project in the themed entertainment industry is pretty unique and pretty exciting. I mean, we often think of those folks that we we have sort of uh, made up as heroes in the industry because they tend to be the ones at the vanguard at the beginning or the thought process, the dreaming up of the big projects that that people come to know and love. And, and they tend to, creative directors, look around at what's been done in the past and what then they look at the technologies that are available, what's coming up next. And then they look at what the audience expects from a particular brand or a particular IP or or whatever those the the expectations. And then they take all of that and then they've got to blow the lid off of it to surprise everybody, all the guests, all the industry and shake things up with their next project. Um, it's kind of a wild position to be in. Um, and it's it's the one that so many of the uh, next gen folks, people in college who are just tra- or just entering the industry, folks who have you know made a switch mid career, and they're asking that same question: How do I get to sort of think through and and take on a role that really belongs to v- very few in our industry? A great creative director. So uh, uh, what I was thinking: <laughs> How does like a, a giant 
genre bending, breaking uh, project, you know, like Jurassic Park, the ride was like uh, Rise of the Resistance currently is like the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at uh, Shanghai Disney. How does something like that um, in the hands of a creative director become an innovation really at the highest levels? You know, it's it's funny because it almost feels like um, on some of the projects, you know, we're doing these days, we're almost asked daily that that uh, question or we're being directed, OK, how do you turn this to 11, you know, for yeah. this final what's the uh, <laughs> references? Yeah, what's the 11? What's the, the thing that is going to be that buzz factor? Um, you know, I, I learned from guys like Tony Baxter um, on one of my first projects where, you know, he had already done a full theme park ground up with Disneyland Paris, you know, uh, definitely a masterpiece, right? He had done things like Indiana Jones. He'd done those epic, you know, but actually, ironically, the first project I got to work on was a simple uh, pool replacement, right? It was, it was a temporary <laughs> pool replacement for a, an old 1950s Olympic sized pool at the Disneyland Hotel. And we were creating this. Uh, replacement and instead of just you know putting uh, laying a graphics and a story and IP over it you know really ground up uh, to really almost alleviate uh, a guilt factor that he had for uh, you know tearing down Skull Rock Cove with New Fantasyland and, and having the, the termite ridden pirate ship fall apart on him you know he basically had to had to bring it back somehow and so you know the the process of Again, pouring your heart, soul, mind into completely, again, blowing away the expectation, both of guests and executives of what a, a simple hotel pool replacement would be by literally putting in that story and letting you be a lost boy and, and climbing yeah. up to the yeah. mountains uh, and, you know, sliding down uh, Crocodile Creek. And I mean, it was really uh, powerful. And again, to see how we were, obviously, he was doing lots of different things. He, it wasn't, this is, wasn't his only project, but the the way that he trusted and delegated and uh, allowed people to bring their different gifting and strength. Guys like John Stone in terms of modeling, uh, guys like uh, uh, the landscape architects, uh, Ema Design, and uh, Ron Izamita to do the uh, realistic landscaping to create the Misty Mountains in a way that just couldn't be done with artificial Disney rock work or the budget that you know uh, would be done in a Tokyo Disney Seas level park, you know, for a sure. So, to me, it's not always about just having the the bigger budget and scope uh, and schedule. Um, I think a lot of it is pouring your personal heart, soul, and passion, sweat, and tears into it, casting that vision, um, taking the experience, you know, of of all the lessons learned and the brain damage occurred, the left brain, the right brain, you know, kind of things, and just knowing what it is that again just fulfills and meets that expectations, and and again to to wow. see someone. Uh, at that level of experience and skill level, do that at the smallest scale. I thought was really kind of, um, you know, for me it was it was definitely mind blowing. Well, and then I think, you know, the the result of that is the landscape for the creative work that people in our industry do is now elevated to a new level that that you want to improve upon uh, in the next iteration or the next project going Absolutely. forward. Absolutely. Yep. Redefining an e-ticket to an F-ticket every time. <laughs> yes, that's right. Always going to 11. In our case, it's an F-ticket. <laughs> our guest today is Adam Bezark. Adam leads a team of inventive dreamers and doers at the Bezark Company, whose diversity of work spans theme park rides, attractions, museums, live events, and spectaculars. He's also got one of those personalities that invites friendship at first sight. 
Even when you meet him for the very first time, he feels like an old friend. And now, our themed attraction podcast interview with our friend, Adam Bezark. Hey, Adam, thanks for hanging out with us, man. Again, I can't believe uh, we're, we're getting like back to back here at, at your studio at uh, uh, Fabulous Club 33 and <laughs> now in uh, in the uh, the studio here. So um, I know, you're going to be is, sick of me now. This is I, well, I can't believe. Well, I, it shocked me that we hadn't gotten you on here before. So um I apologize cool. for the, the oversight. I'm oh, it's just a delay. Awesome. It's just a delay. He got in line and and then he, he got out of line and then he got back in line. And so, it's, right. Uh, I didn't have a fast pass and I couldn't yeah. get in our lightning lane. So I had to, I had to go back go. around again. Yeah. yeah. Come up, come up the exit next time. We'll let you in. Oh, nice. <laughs> very cool. Oh, it's really cool to be here and, and to see you guys too. thanks for inviting me into your beautiful uh, Tiki Phil the living room there for yeah thank you thank you very much my uh my tiki dri- t- tiki backdrop is always something uh <laughs> growing and tweeting well we you know we've had some pretty prestigious and awesome uh guests on the show i have yeah, got to say now you have but me. we have a, <laughs> well all kidding aside you had to we run have, out someday <laughs> we have our first themed entertainment association master and, uh, you know, like we call a lot of people the masters of the craft, but we actually have someone that's certified and has a yeah. pen and a paper a pen to prove it. That's and right. everything. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that is so cool. Adam, do you mind just sharing for our listeners that uh, either A, aren't familiar with the Themed Entertainment Association or B, with the, the master's program? Just kind of giving yeah. a little bit of a. Sure. Well, I, I, I assume that a number of your listeners will have be familiar with the, the TEA, the Themed Entertainment Association. It is now in its. Oh my gosh, coming, it must be coming up on 30 years at this point. Then there was, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. formed in the mid nineties and it, it's an organization that started, it has gone through many personalities over its lifespan. It started off as an angry bargaining strategy that was founded by uh, the great Monty Lundy because a number of the, the vendors working for Disney and Universal who were the independent companies were finding that the contracts they were being asked to sign were so egregious and onerous and, and that people would just go out of business if you signed if you signed one of those contracts back in those days you were basically guaranteed bankruptcy yeah. and, and so they sort of it was kind of a way for folks to band together and try to go to disney and universal with a kind of a unified voice and say would you guys do you really want to put us out of business or would you maybe like to hire us again sometime in which case maybe <laughs> treat us a little better and so then the conversation started going and then disney and universal both kind of went oh okay i guess we could see a need to hire you again sometime so we will not actively work to put you out of business and then it just and 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 that was sort of the first point of the TA, but then it quickly grew into something much bigger which was an organization for for the creators uh, and designers of compelling places and experiences to to gather, to network, to learn, to mentor, to build our to build our business, to share business, and to honor excellence in as many different ways as we can. And the first thing uh, that came out of that honoring thing was the Thea Awards, which started now twenty five years ago, I think, by first just honoring Marty Sklar one one evening for one guy, where they just honored a guy who had done so much for the industry, and then over the time it it grew into this series of annual awards where they give sixteen or seventeen different experiences and and projects around the world awards, plus one award per year for the for the Buzz Price uh, achievement 
rest of a lifetime of, of, of amazing. <laughs> and um, and now that and it has also grown now to include a service award and a catalyst award, which is for people who are out there doing really good things for the community, not just for the for the industry. And so it, it, it is sort of growing over time into something really sort of meaningful in a, in a lot of different ways, which is great. And, um, and that is an amazing process, the Thea Awards. And if you, if you haven't ever been to it or seen it, it's pretty cool and worth checking out. And, um, I've, I've had the honor of being on the committee for a while and I chaired the committee one year and it's fascinating to sort of get a behind the scenes view of how that process works, like how you, how it grows into what it is. And then, um, in the last five years or so, uh, Monty and some other of the TEA sort of founding lights got together and said, well, now we have these Thea Awards, which are there to honor projects that are great work that has been done. And, and the honor goes to the owner of the project that if it goes right. to, if Disney builds an attraction, then Disneyland gets the attraction. If, you know, if, if Six Flags builds a beautiful attraction, then that park comes and picks it up, but they, they reflect you know, glory on the designers and creators who worked on it, but we don't actually receive the awards. The owner gets the award. Yeah. So it's not an award for individuals and achievement. It's an award for the whole project. Now this new uh, uh, sort of recognition that has been started in the last few years, the, the TEA masters of their craft is designed to seek out and honor people from various parts of the industry who are specifically good at something who are who are sort of has sort of become specialists in their area of expertise over a period of time for 20 years or more so uh art directors sculptors engineers show control people architects mass uh project managers all kinds of folks are anybody who's worked in the industry and is sort of known for their you know expertise in one area can be sort of honored and brought into the masters. And, and this is a cool new program because it's not just, you get a, you get a, get a nice plaque and a pen, which is great, but you all, it's also sort of a, an opportunity to serve because the masters then become a group that is sort of it's putting ourselves out there to mentor new yeah. students coming in or people interested in changing careers or learning about new careers. And so we're just sort of now in just in the, it, now that we're in our fourth or fifth year of doing this, figuring out the kinds of uh, opportunities we can have to kind of like help move educational programs along and talk to folks about career opportunities. So, that, so that's cool. It's yeah, been a, it, it's been a joy getting to, you know, capture some of these guys in some live sessions yeah. uh, as a TIA board member. You know, we had a, an amazing time with Joel Torme. Disney's kind of mountain builder. I've got uh, Joe Falzetta scheduled actually. Uh, in the upcoming weeks, to to, He's to a you know, bright as, fellow, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the uh, lighting the magic guy, um, and uh, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, it's, it's just uh, really humbling uh, to get time with the uh, you and your your cohorts there, Adam. It's so, uh, it's, it's a neat group, and it grows by it, very small increments by f- maybe five people per year, maybe even, and they're even suggesting we make it less over time because we, it doesn't want to turn into you know, 5,000 masters they want to, but right. we're trying to get representation from as many different disciplines as we can and also different parts of the globe. So we've got now folks from uh, Europe and Asia joining the group and hope to do more of that so that it really, really becomes representative of all the knowledge and expertise that exists in this industry because there's so much of it. And it's kind of yeah. cool to kind of have, you know, for the TEA to be able to show off all the knowledge that exists in the industry and sort of put that out there for, for 
media or or students and such to access. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I always thought uh, I've had the opportunity to go to the uh, TEA summit multiple times and the and the Theo Awards as well. Yeah. And it was so so interesting that the industry is. While while there is a competition in there that that everybody is everybody there a lot of people there are there to win some work you know try and find that con- <laughs> that connection right. and win some work but right. at the same time there's this nurturing factor that that is yeah. palpable and I think the nurturing factor outweighs that uh, networking factor in a lot of ways which I think nurturing over networking is <laughs> uh, is more healthy. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah. I think it's one of the things that that I've always liked about our business is that you, you see other entertainment businesses like movies or TV, and they can be very competitive, very sort of almost cutthroat, right? And, you know, you have to really have a almost a shark instinct to survive in those worlds and thrive <laughs> right. in those worlds. But our world, for reasons I've never fully understand, is is, I think, nicer than almost any other entertainment area. I, I, I've tried to figure out why I, I sort of suspect it may be because I don't know, because we know among, for one thing, we know that we don't really get a lot of credit for what we do. If you do this work, the, you know, at best, you might get your name on a window on main street or on a tombstone right, or something right. like that. I got a tombstone in, in Shanghai with my name on it. Yay. But, that, yeah, but you really, but, but um, but you know that that's kind of it. So you're not going to become a household name. You're not going to be followed by paparazzi. So that kind of, those kind of big egos don't tend to gravitate here. You're also not going to make a, the kind of crazy money you might make in the movie business. In the films, you can do fine. You can have a very nice living and put your kids through school and have a nice life and everything. But but you're not going to have you know Oprah's house. You're going to have a nice house, <laughs> right? and, and that's great and that's fine. And, and also, I think it's because folks in our industry are so. Um, multi-talented it's renaissance people and we're all curious we're always like interested in learning new things mm-hmm. in, in, in movies or tv you tend to get you know pigeonholed very quickly if you're a first ad you're a first ad if you're a second ad you can aspire to be a first ad and that's about <laughs> it, right but in our business if you're a set designer you might become a special effects person or a robot builder you can be yeah. you can jump around and change hats and that makes us more curious and a lot more interested in like sharing knowledge and saying, yeah, come over here, help me with this and, and swapping hats well, uh, and swapping knowledge. Right? Adam, do you think there's a, an element of being kind of a castaway in Gilligan's Island in that it's, it's a pretty <laughs> small Island, pretty small yeah. industry. Yeah, Again, if you may be competing with someone today, but uh, tomorrow you'll either be working alongside them or for them, yeah. or the, the, you might need their help working for you. Absolutely. Yeah. We just, we say that all the time. We don't have, competitors we just have future future, future collaborators and friends exactly. right yeah and, and on those rare occasions so you know sometimes we are all bidden for the same project our, then our motto is good luck everybody and you know winner buys dinner if you yeah. get it <laughs> you, if you, you get it great congratulations buy me a nice meal i'll get you the next time so well you are underselling yourself adam because you truly are one of the nicest guys in the industry and and somehow you make us all believe when when you call us your pals that uh, we we actually are your pals and and uh, and it, it really is an honor and privilege to call you a friend and uh, <laughs> uh, my evil scheme is working. Yeah, <laughs> you're a master. <laughs> Can't do all into thinking I like you. <laughs> well, I, I I think we need to do the disclaimer. I mean, uh, whenever we've needed to turn a project to eleven, uh, you know, you're you're the the person we're going to include uh, on our on our uh, team uh, and. Um, 
you know, you really do have a, not just yourself, you've built a pretty, pretty unique team of uh, yeah. creative collaborators that has just been a, a, a joy to, to, to dream together uh, alongside. We like it. I mean, every company in this industry is different, right? We're all weirdos, but we all draw our particular kind of weirdos to us. So our company weirdly named the Bizarre Company is, uh, and, and how lucky am I, I did, you know, that I got to work for a place named that. <laughs> sounds like I own the place. How can be right. amazing. Yeah. Um, the, um, but um, because I'm a writer and show director first, that's what it, the company has grown up around is, you know, sort of creative direction, writing, show direction and show producing. A lot of other companies are design first and we're kind of, story first we all say we're storytellers in this business right everybody sure. but everybody tells stories and with different tool sets so so great designers tell stories with their pencils and start to start visualizing story right away and what we do is we talk and giggle and and diagram and whiteboard and and write until we have a, a an idea or a concept that we like and then we start visualizing mm -hmm. it's just our it's just our process is different yeah. so so this company tends to have writers, creative directors, and storytellers, and and artists are something that we collect in in the little, uh, in, in our magical Rolodex, and we bring in artists who are correct for each project. We don't actually have artists in-house. We have a beautiful Rolodex of folks from all over the industry, from, and outside the industry, from movies and, and special effects and video games and things like that, who can, who can design whatever it is we've sort of whatever we figured out we want it to be then we find the right folks to visualize right, right. the art it's just a different way of going at it and, and other folks every, everybody solves it differently so we're just we're, that's our weird <laughs> everybody's got their weird well i know um you've got a pretty unique uh entry point into the industry in terms of potentially being one of the the first uh uh, alumni of the industry that actually uh, actually kind of sort of made up your own degree uh, and, and probably <laughs> the first uh, of, of now many purpose. that have a degree in entertainment uh, design. How did, how did, first of all, you get interested in pursuing this field of study and then how yeah. hard was it for you to create your own uh, <laughs> undergraduate well, it was, degree? It, well, it was weird how hard it was back then. Like it, it it's strange that this industry took so long to define itself and to know how to, to explain itself to others. Right. And so, mm -hmm. so, well, yeah, when I was a kid, first of all, I didn't grow up in California. Like a lot of folks did. I grew up in Chicago. And so as a little kid, I was a creative nerd for sure, but I didn't know what Disneyland was. So I was, you know, in, I was, instead of, uh, building rides like some kids were it, it count socal kids i was building you know puppet shows and magic shows for the neighborhood kids and theater and making special effects and movies in the backyard all those things that you do right all this yeah, it, yeah. theater at school and stuff like that <clears throat> and i think it was i don't know when i was 13 or something like that my parents took me to visit some relatives in la and we went to disneyland or I said, I want to go to that Disneyland thing. I don't know what it is, but it sounds cool. Can we go? And we, and we went and, uh, the, and I was just always a dramatic little so-and-so. So, so, so I said, I'm going to save something cool for the, for the last part of the, of the visit. And I said, that Haunted Mansion thing sounds good. So I saved the Haunted Mansion until the very end of our visit. And I went in that and my brain 
blew out the back of my head. I, <laughs> I had no idea. I was completely unprepared for what that thing was going to show me because at the time the special effects and the illusions in there were not commonly known. They were really amazing miracles. And I was, had done just enough home movies and special effects to know that I didn't know how they did that. And I wanted to know, and I couldn't get over it. Plus my brain was exploding with this place I'd been in and this cool environment and the music and the cold and the, and the dark and the ride and everything just came together so astonishingly that I went into a sort of a coma that lasted for the next five or six years. And all I could do was talk or think about the haunted mansion. I must've been the most that's awesome. obnoxious kid alive. And the most obnoxious kid in Chicago. Right. <laughs> right. There were probably plenty of them back here. Uh, I'm sure Baxter was doing the same thing. At the, at the, at the, uh, but the, um, but I couldn't stop talking about it, but it didn't occur to me that I could actually do this for a, a long time. I, I didn't know what to be. And then at some point, I think my dad said, well, if you like that Disneyland thing so much, why don't you do that? And I went, oh, I could do that. <laughs> and then I became obsessed with, well, how do I do that? How do I get a, how do I get a degree in theme parks? And I started checking out all the universities. And of course there was nothing, there's no place to get that degree. So finally my desperate search led to USC, which does not have a degree in theme parks, but did have a sort of DIY major, a, a, an interdisciplinary degree program where you could put together pieces of different things. So I wound up cobbling together film and theater and urban design, graphic design, audio design, anything I could get my hands on that I thought might be related to it. I didn't know. I was just making it up. And I managed to get a, somehow I managed to get an internship at Disneyland Park with the live entertainment division. And, yeah. and I tried uh, Imagineering and they wouldn't take me. I like, I met Marty Sklar and he went, who are you kid? We don't do if we don't have internships, what's an internship? And he started sending me up. But, but there was, uh, but at, at Disney live entertainment, the guy running it at the time was a one lovely guy named Bob Yanni, who was the, mm -hmm. the first great vice president of live entertainment at Disney. He created the electrical parade, yeah. he did all the bicentennial stuff, amazing guy. And he was a big believer in education and he was a USC alum. So he let me come down once a week and just follow different people around. And I just like, what do you do? What do you do? That's <laughs> great. Did that every week. And I met cool people, including a guy who became my business partner later, Don Dorsey. Uh, we, we just, cracked each other up and started telling dopey jokes and doing uh, coming up with ideas together. And, uh, after I graduated, Don and I started pitching ideas to anybody that would listen to us. And eventually I'm shortcutting a bit. We eventually pitched an idea for Epcot. We heard Epcot was being built and we wanted to said that thing needs a lagoon show. They should put a big show on that big lagoon. And we came up with a, a completely just out of nowhere idea for this insanely over the top, uh, fountain and, and, you know, light show that should happen in the lagoon. And they said, Oh, we're already doing a, a show in that lagoon. Thanks fellas. But then when the show actually opened, they decided they wanted to juice it up and do a, do a fancier version of it. And they remembered us and they called us back and we got to like, do the upgrade to the show. And no then, kidding. yeah. And then that became, uh, first it was, New World Fantasy, then it was Laser Phonic Fantasy, and then it became Illuminations, which ran for many years and was very popular. And so it just by being dopey and not knowing that <laughs> that was crazy to pitch ideas to Disney, we just got in the door. It was completely unearned 
success, I think. Hungry and available is what you sound like. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I, I Don was much more sophisticated than I was because he'd been around Disney a bit more and had already done the music for the electrical parade and for parade systems and stuff like that. So he was he sort of helped steer me through the rocks. I was just going, Wee, we're doing things. Wee, wow, woo hoo. <laughs> and, and I looked about seven and, uh, and I had like literally a beanie cap, you know, on my head practically. I, was just, I looked like Dennis the Menace or something. And I must have baffled every. Uh, you know, everybody at entertainment, especially in Florida, they, they said, who's that kid? What's he doing? Why is he telling us to do what to do a show? What's he trying to tell us? <laughs> they didn't, but we eventually just kind of figured it out and did more stuff and more stuff. And here we are. So ah, that actually sounds like the beginning of a, a WDI anyway, or uh wed, you know, it's like, you know how to make a set, come over here and make a, <clears throat> permanent set <laughs> right yeah well, yeah yeah well what was amazing with with walt in those days was he just had an eye, eye for talent like he knew you, you could do things that you didn't know you could do right mm -hmm. and he would he would f see something in you and pull it out of you my my favorite early imaginary uh, wed story was you know my personal hero because i'm a writer i my guy is existencia right yeah. who wrote the scripts for pirates and haunted mansion and other stuff and and he hadn't written anything before. I, I I talked to him a couple of times. Like he said, I don't know. I was an animator. I was he was doing like special effects animation on Mary Poppins. He was like making the little toy soldiers go in and out of the boxes yeah. and stuff. And Walt said, Hey, X, I think you could write this pirate ride we're doing. Why don't you do that? And X went, Okay. And he just did. <laughs> and Walt just told him. And so he said, Well, I, I guess I'll go get some pirate books so he went and read treasure island a bunch of stuff and he started writing kind of started speaking like a pirate and talking <laughs> R like and stuff and then he went back to walt a couple of weeks later and said hey well you know what would be good would be some kind of song for this pirate ride like a, some kind of yo ho yo ho -y kind of song and walt said great go talk to buddy over there and he sent him to buddy baker and they came up with a song and yeah. and how did walt know that a, that a special effects animator could write beautiful dialogue stories and song lyrics I, i'll never understand that but that's kind of the magic of those of those early days and what they were able to what that's what i meant about the renaissance nature of this business where you do one thing but somebody says you're funny you tell funny jokes why don't you write that that those yeah. the jokes that script right and and you get to do that well how having uh, that that kinship with uh existential how did it feel being handed the keys to uh Pirates of the Caribbean, Shanghai to try to oh, turn boy. that uh, terrifying to eleven and, and reinvent that for a new uh, kind of new millennium. Totally terrifying and thrilling. Obviously, um, uh, Luke Mayrand and I had known each other a long time, and um, and he called me in and sort of on the first day of when he first got the we had we had noodled around on some of the early 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 ideas for Shanghai Disneyland, and then he when he got the nod to do. Uh, the, the pirate land, he called me in and we just started talking about pirate rides and we were the first two guys on it. And over the time, the team built up and built up to an amazing team of folks. But um, the, the first thing we learned was that the, 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 the you know, the Chinese investors in Shanghai, because these, these international projects are always partnerships and the, the Chinese investors didn't want a pirate ride. They, they you know, cause they, Disney went to them and said, well, we're going to do the Pirates of the Caribbean. That's our big famous ride that everybody loves. They said, no, that's a, 
that ride's old and boring. And we all went, what? What do you mean old and boring? It's like the most famous ride ever. <laughs> but if you kind of like turn your nostalgia muscle off and to look at it from a completely outside culture looking in, you go, oh my gosh, it kind of does look more like a museum piece, you know, in terms of its technology and it's the way it tells storytelling. And, the, and if you think about it, the way the original pirates ride unfolds feels kind of like the way movies were shot in the 60s, right? Yep. That, that the camera was almost always on sticks at eye level kind of moving through and it would, would, would scenes would evolve and you'd have big fight scenes, but they'd be evolving at a fairly steady, stately pace. There, But now all of a sudden you had um, the, the new pirate movies and they were, they were using all the modern tools of modern cinema with incredible moving cameras and flying cameras and fast cutting and, you know, crazy action scenes. And we thought, you're right. If you, when you hold this kind of storytelling up to that kind of 60 storytelling, it, it does need to be updated. So, all right, let's do that. So we just started thinking, all right, if you could, if you could make a movie, if you could make a ride that felt like the movies feel today, how, what would it feel like? You'd have more dynamic travel and you'd, you'd move the camera around and you'd have big, crazy action and big explosions and really immerse you in the middle of it. And it just got silly. And on the first day, Luke, <laughs> and on the first day, Luke said, I'm going to go underwater. And I said, okay, I want to go between two ships when they're fighting instead of just to have one ship shoot at me. I want to go between them. And, and those two things stuck and everything else just kind of snowballed over time as other people came in and started contributing ideas. So you had, um, Rick Turner, who's an amazing effects guy coming up with the beautiful illusions. And you had, uh, the, um, uh, Kevin Cardani and John Lorena who went on to, uh, Star Wars, uh, you know, Rise of the Resistance fame, figuring out the layout and the set, and everybody brought their A game to it. Just got excited about it and brought more and more cool stuff into it as it went along. So it was crazy, and yeah. and when we pitched it, we pitched it a number of times, you know, to the to the big brass and to Iger, Bob Iger, and everybody. Though. <laughs> The, the big pitch when they were touring it and seeing it, the, the first big mega pitch was we had prepared a slideshow of the, of the walkthrough and, and we had a video of, of uh, like a little fly through animatic. And the night before we were going to show it to Iger, uh, Bob Weiss came in who was running the project and said, that's good. But instead of just uh, putting them on one screen, what if you put them on two screens and you had like the movie over here and the, and the, slides over there and stuff and we went what <laughs> and adam wound up staying all, up all night pulling our entire presentation apart and putting it on two different screens and reanimating all the transitions and retiming everything and it was down to like two two uh clickers and <laughs> and and as we were the next morning as we were getting ready you could hear the like the the executives coming down the hall going from land to land and getting closer and closer to us and luke and nancy are kind of going hey adam how's that going have you have you saved the, <laughs> have you saved the deck yet i said i'm almost there hang on it's saving yeah, and literally yeah. literally it's saving as they walk into the room and they all come in and sit down and we go well ladies and gentlemen now, for the first time on any stage, please <laughs> welcome Pirates of the Caribbean. And we just sort of went ding, 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 ding. And luckily, they loved it. it was nice. Cool. It, was, it was a cool thing. Well, was there any learnings from, uh, like you said, reinventing the the classic dark ride for the 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 new uh, century and millennium uh, that that you were able to get from reinventing the kind of uh, 
traditional live audience stage show with the T2 3D uh, kind of uh, take on that. Because if, if any of you haven't experienced it, I'm so sorry for you and so sad for you. <laughs> you can still, go to, <laughs> you can still go, go to Osaka and see it. I don't know how much longer it'll be. In definitely Osaka, worth the, the plane trip just to experience <laughs> right. it. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, because that, that was a fairly mind-blowing experience of what you could possibly do within a proscenium. Well, it's fun to... Was it Ray Bradbury who said, you know, jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down, right? Sometimes <laughs> it's fun to just say, we want to do this. We'll figure out how we'll do it later, right? So that certainly happened with Pirates and Luke and, and Rick and everybody figured out a whole new kind of boat ride system that can go backwards and sideways and, and precise, precisely align with media and everything. Nobody had ever done anything like that with a boat ride before. For, for Terminator... Um, that one was a weird, uh, <laughs> it was a weird, everything has a weird origin story. Nothing ever starts out the way you think it's going to. So the Terminator show actually started off, uh, as a replacement for the old, you know, I don't know if you remember universal used to have a thing they called the screen test theater where they oh, pulled yeah. people up out of the audience and yeah. put them on stage and made them act out scenes from a thing. And they originally came and said, Oh, we, we think, and they were using, doing a Star Trek show at the time with people from the audience. And I think they were saying, we think we're going to lose Star Trek, the rights to Star Trek, but we think we can get Terminator. What if you did a screen test theater with Terminator? Oh, Pretty <laughs> humble this? beginning. Yeah. And we thought, that sounds terrible. <laughs> and, then, and then they said, well, what if it was a stunt show? And if you did like a Terminator stunt show with like, you know, having a helicopter flying over the audience and, and having, uh, you know, stunt fights and stuff. And we thought, well, that sounds terrible too, because the Terminator <laughs> movies, the, the Terminator Two was groundbreaking, a groundbreaking movie because it introduced um, all those morphing effects and computer yeah. graphics that had never really been seen before. And so we said, if you're really going to do justice to those Terminator movies, you have to deliver that. And how do you do that in a live stunt show? Right? I had these nightmare visions of like a guy in a silver suit with a rubber suit yeah. with like rubber yeah, yeah. hands stretching his fingers blue man group but silver <laughs> yeah it could have been really <laughs> embarrassing and and then i remembered that my dad had been to this great place that's still in prague the the, the laterna magica in prague is this beautiful old 1960s theater that was started by um uh Oh, I'll think of his name in a second. Famous uh, designer. And he was experimenting in the 60s with with people jumping in and out of film screens, with slotted film screens and oh, yeah, people popping yeah. in and out in, in precision timing with the with the thing. And I thought, well, maybe that would solve it. Maybe because then you could have like you could have some live stunts on the screen, but then you could jump into the screen to do the stretching and, and morphing and effects and then pop back out again and very naively thought that would be easy. And then I thought, oh, well, there's three. And, and we were all into 3D at the time. We said, well, you can mix that with 3D. And and we knew that you could kind of do, there were some very early things being done with computer graphics in 3D at the time. And we thought, well, that could look cool. And what if you mix that together? 3D graphics and jumping in and out of a screen. That's easy. We'll just pitch that. And, <laughs> and that was, you know, jumping off the cliff because you didn't know what it actually would entail to do that. But we were able to pitch it to Jim Cameron and he actually loved it and championed it and 
pushed Universal to make it great and to hire Schwarzenegger and the entire cast of the movie and not just because Universal kept saying, can we, well, we can't afford Schwarzenegger. Can we just have a guy in the movie who kind of looks like Schwarzenegger, but his face is all shot up? And Cameron said, no, it's, it's Schwarzenegger. If you're going to get Schwarzenegger, you got to get, I don't know how to focus. You gotta, if you're going to get the cast, get the cast. And, and he convinced them to do that and to go out all out. And that, that might have been the first big attraction that had the real cast of a big mega hit show mm-hmm. and, and that, that's sort of become understood that that's what you should do when you do these things that, that it's much more authentic that way so it's kind of crazy sorry i'm just uh no it's great oh dopey uh, stories yeah have you seen what's replaced it seen the uh born I tried, man, and <laughs> I I went to the park last year right after IAPA, and I told uh, John that I was going to go see it. I was all excited to go check it out um, uh, from uh, from uh, Renaissance Entertainment, yeah. and the, the the guys John and Lisa who produced it are lovely folks, and we had worked together a little bit on on Shanghai because they did the pirate stunt show in Shanghai while, while the, the ride was happening next door. Um, and they're great guys. And I was super excited to see it. And I went to the park and the show was down. Uh, the first show was down and I waited around and the second show was down and then I had to go to the airport. So yeah. they owe me a show. So I really want to see it. They do owe you a show. It, it's, 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 spectacular. it's pretty spectacular. It's, yeah. it's uh, very surrounding and and there's a little bit of that vertigo feeling where you think you're being lifted off and tipped upside down just like uh, you're in a car it's pretty tremendous pretty it's good. great it, 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 it we knew back when we were doing t2 that we were only scratching the surface and that there yeah. was so much more you could do with live performance and media mm-hmm. and i really want to see where born went because i i i think as I bet they would tell you the same thing that as far as that went, there's even more you can do with playing with those games with sort of the expanding your brain. I really love what happens when you mix uh, the world of attractions and the world of live entertainment together. There's a, there's a real power yes. there that is in some ways yeah. more powerful than either alone because, mm-hmm. yeah. because right. Cause a, cause a ride can be amazing and spectacular, but the, the energy and the, love that you get out of human performance is something you can never an animatronics can't do it media can't do the same thing that a live performer can do so find cool ways to mix them together you can make i think really incredible stuff and that's really an that's really an underexplored part of our industry yeah i I think it's interesting now that you know (laughs) the show shows like the mandalorian are using the i i always forget the name of the technology but that the volume yeah yeah yeah, to to create now now you really are a live performance in front of media and that's what that uh, those attractions are doing they're they're Mm -hmm. that blending which we didn't we weren't doing before and that's amazing the crossover yeah pretty spectacular it is crazy yeah i'll go ahead I was just going to say, if you're on that stage shooting those scenes, it looks really weird because the whole, as the camera is moving past you, the entire wall of media behind you is going, behind you, so that it lines up correctly to the camera's point of view. It only looks good for that one lens that's moving around. Yeah. Otherwise, we would have already made show, more shows like that where you created a volume and had people in it. But the, the trick is... It only works from one eye from that one eyeball. <laughs> it's really cool for that one eyeball, but it's a, that's tough on capacity. <laughs> it's hard to <laughs> THRC. <laughs> we can get one eyeball a day through there. 
How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they are felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit storylandstudios.com or call now. 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big ideas, best ally. Well, um, I hear some uh, some traffic behind you, and that just r- reminds me how uh, firmly rooted in L.A., the City of Angels, you are living downtown in the Artist District and with your uh, studio there in Atwater Village, and uh, I'm expecting that Terminator to uh, Harley to, to come uh, rolling by he at rides uh, 345, by. The right? Actual, <laughs> the actual Terminator rides by about <laughs> twice a day up and down our street, gunning it for all these words. So you may hear it during this thing. I don't know if you're hearing all the, all the traffic. I'm literally on the other – if I turn the camera, I can go like this. That's the street right outside my window. So I, I'm, I'm five feet away from rush hour traffic going by. Well, as as kind of following Walt's footsteps, I guess from the Midwest to uh, to your adopted city of there LA, you go. I, I am uh, curious on um, you know with a lot of the industry relocating uh, to uh, Orlando potentially, um, supposedly. Um, you know, we're, we're we obviously have some roots here in Southern California. Uh, do you think uh, you're a you're going to be sticking around? Are you? Do you feel pretty rooted uh, in this uh, particular creative ecosystem, or are you kind of? Uh, well, you know, luckily, kind of itch, I don't work for a company that's moving them to Florida, but I, we <laughs> we we contract for them, but we don't have to move. So um, it is it is weird. It's it's weird to think about that that move about what an upheaval it is to have the founders of the industry just pulling up stakes and leaving town. It's still a little hard to believe. It's still a little hard. It's still part of me thinks maybe they'll change their mind and decide it's not such a great idea or, or maybe they'll pull it off. Maybe they will do, you know, universal made this move 20 years ago and it was, and it took them 10 years to get back up to speed after they moved. They, they lost a huge amount of critical talent and they they took a great a lot of great people to florida but they lost a lot of people and it took them mm. years to build up the infrastructure so that they could really do the, the the crazy amazing work they're doing now so they've proved you can do it but i just wonder you know what's that hit going to be like for disney it's already happening right they're already a lot, a lot yeah. of people have already left the company and are starting up their own companies or coming to work for folks like you and me. Well, that's great. Uh, yeah. Well, so- I think our, uh, like Jeff Wyatt on our team, you know, worked on T2 with you back in the day. Uh-huh. I think he was uh, Craig Hanna's uh, carpool buddy, you know, and like Thinkwell was one of the offshoots of that universal move. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be uh, even more spinoffs and, 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 and we're going to be certainly uh, benefiting from some new hires, I think uh, in the, if, if again, that continues, but, 
good to hear that uh, you're you're not going anywhere anytime soon. And I and have still- to assume that I'll, I don't know. I think there is so much creative energy in this area because of the movie business and the TV business and the video games and everything. There's so much in LA. It's hard to imagine you'd want to, even though everything can be virtualized today, it's still not quite the same as being able to get together for lunch and hang out and uh, write, sure. a, write in a whiteboard together. Right. And so uh, it, it's really hard to guess. I, I, I spend every day trying to figure out what's going to happen next. I'm sure you do. Yeah. Too. The, the, well, I know with, with our company, the synergies between not just Hollywood, but also Silicon Valley and the tech sector. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, I worry almost about a little bit of a, ghettoization, you know, of being in, um, you know, certainly Central Florida is a hub, but, you know, just, just as in my humble opinion, you know, if you compared Magic King to Disneyland, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, not quite as, um, I don't know, how, how would there's you a compare quality maybe? over quantity? <laughs> yeah. There's a richness and a depth that is baked into, I think, into Disneyland because, you know, the hands of the masters built it and because it's had an extra, 15 years to build up and because mm-hmm. it, and mm-hmm. because it has soaked up all the California goodness you know, along the way. <laughs> and, and it's hard to imagine, you know, just the whole industry moving to Florida. That doesn't seem likely. Uh, what I can see is a lot of folks opening offices in Orlando. I, it's already mm-hmm. happening. Right. And sure. I don't know, if, I don't know if you guys are going to do it. We'll do it if it's useful, but also there's airplanes and there's Zoom, so we can always just pop over there. But I think I think increasingly you'll see like sort of bi-coastal companies who keep a presence in Orlando so they can do work there and drop in, I guess. It's anybody's <laughs> guess. Ask me again in a year and it might be totally different, right? Well, I, I do happen to be a believer in, uh, you know, being tied to place uh, and, and having some roots and not just being, you know, yeah. just a jet setter. Uh, as much <laughs> as I get on a plane every week, I still love coming home uh, and having, yeah. them, you know. Right. But uh, I, I wanted to get back to your uh, Chicago roots and specifically ask you, just because we're gentlemen of a certain age, if you ever <laughs> had a chance to ride the Chicago Loop at Old Chicago or the turn of the century at great America. Uh, did did oh either God. one of those uh, parks enter into your young influential uh, form? <laughs> I'm embarrassed to years. say that. Yes, I did ride both of those things. So, um, <laughs> so honestly, the first influences on this first sort of themed entertainment influence that I felt wasn't actually in a theme park. It was, well, actually, I'm old enough that I went to Riverview, the the old Ooh. the old amusement park that was around way back wow. then and got torn down. And I was a wee widow baby, but I have weird memories of the Aladdin's Castle wow. uh, fun house that you went through that was creepy, and I was really weirded out. I didn't know what that was. But <laughs> but my but my first real experience with themed entertainment it, uh, was at the legendary and magnificent museum of science and industry in chicago uh, oh where, yeah right where they had yep. a full nice. coal mine that you could go through that was super theatrical it was you yeah. know a complete immersive themed environment and even better they had this <laughs> paul bunyan exhibit that was 
it was part of the <laughs> hardwoods exhibit and you would go down into way into the basement of the museum of science industry and they had this exhibit about the world of hardwoods and first you went past a giant globe that with picked with light bulbs on it and pieces of hardwood around it and if you pressed a piece of oak a light bulb would go on to show you where <laughs> oak came from that was illuminating and then you next you walked down a hallway that had like a little miniature sawmill in it you could see little guys sawing wood little little dudes in that and that was kind of cool but then at the end of that hallway was a log cabin and you walked into that <laughs> log cabin and at the other end of the log cabin was a gigantic 10 foot tall head of paul bunyan looking in the window staring at you <laughs> and and it was like and the floor of the cabin was tilted as though paul had lifted this cabin up 40 feet in the air and was looking into it yeah. oh. and he was telling you stories about hello boys and girls i'm paul bunyan <laughs> and it was and it was made of like super crude paper mache. It was lit with like one fluorescent light from below. It had two, it was an, the first <laughs> animatronic I'd ever seen, but it had two moves. It had mouth and eyes back and forth. And he would go like that. Yeah. How bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with no sink between his eyes and his mouth or anything. We talk like that. And, and you could see his giant hand outside the window like he was holding it up. And there was uh, like a, a big watch, his Paul Bunyan's watch inside the log cabin. And because of the tilted floor, little Adam was really pretty sure that I was going to slide down that floor and he was going to eat me. Right, that that yeah. was going to oh. slide into Paul Bunyan's yeah. mouth and be eaten by Paul Bunyan, and so it was it's became, all about terrifying kids. Absolutely, <laughs> right? Absolutely. The I think the you know the the most noble thing you can do in life is scare the crap out of a little kid because <laughs> they'll remember as long as they're not really scarred by it. But it's yeah. kind of become a rite of passage. They'll remember that forever. They'll that like yeah. I do. I remember, you know, the courage I had to work up every time I went to, I had to go see Paul Bunyan and force myself <laughs> to confront the, the towering error <laughs> of Paul Bunyan. I, I, I had a little love-hate relationship with that guy, and it was super powerful to remember that. So that was like my very first kind of themed experience. But yes, I did go to old Chicago once when it was there. We filmed uh, a scene for our high school musical there we did carousel of course nice. and, oh, yeah. what a and, perfect and setting we, we filmed on the carousel but it was so dumb because we filmed a scene that looked was supposed to look like the 1880s but it was clearly you know 1980s you know chicago <laughs> and um and uh also went to great america when it was first opened when it was still marriott's great america and got to have five cent root beer and stuff like that so Yes, so, yes, I'm hey, really old. Thanks, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for pointing it out. Did, uh, you know, talking about the idea of scaring kids, <laughs> or yes, or the idea that <laughs> that what that did to you in in giving you that courage that that momentary terror. I always I've told the story about my my son who he always hated. He loved pirates, but he hated going on the ride because he knew that by the end of it, we were about to go over to haunted mansion because and he, he just jumped out of pirates and he was scared of the mansion. Really? So he even loved pirates. Even, even yeah. Even though he'd been on it, he knew we were going to be pulling him in and saying, huh. you got to go on haunted mansion. So pirates made it, you know, that exit spills out right. Practically at the entrance points to you at uh, the mansion, right? Points you at the mansion. And he, he didn't. So it, I, I do love the, um, the idea of giving kids that over, overcomable fear 
Um, and we talk a lot about the idea of transformative experiences. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's one example of a transformative experience. Did you face your, your big bad? Um, and I think, yeah, I think you can. How, how have you approached, uh, uh, experiences, attractions, things like that, that, uh, are transformative that, that give people a new perspective when they walk out? Well, uh, oh golly. Now you're talking deep deep shoes. Um, I, I think, um, I think I always hope that everything we do, how do you say this kind of lands with you and sits with you and sinks into mm. you in some way. Mm. Like I, I am not a super fan of attractions that just go for four minutes and then they're over and we could all it sounds like a lot of chinese theme parks i've been to (laughs) yes there are and some american ones that 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 love to just turn it all up to 11 and there's no sense of arrival or build or completion or Mm -hmm. pacing or anything and i think the the experiences i've been most shaped by which are probably pirates and mansion and a few other things and the ones that i've always tried to work on i've always tried to sit with you in a way that they that they stick in your head that there there are things things you want to be memorable about them and a sense of and and if we're really lucky get a sense of emotion into these things which tend to be very mechanical but if you get them yeah right if i can just get one moment where you even get like a little lump in your throat or a little yeah sense of accomplishment like you've really done something yeah like on the jaws ride right and to work on that thing in florida and and that was um, it was, it didn't have an ending. It, it, I mean, it had an ending. It blew up the shark, but it didn't have a, an ending. And it didn't have a finish for the audience. Like you blew up the shark and then you just sort of drove back into the dock. And it felt like you needed a moment to celebrate it. So we retooled the timing and added a musical cue with a quiet swell of music that grows in a big grand triumphant thing and said, yay, call off the Marines. We're coming home. And just having a moment to actually celebrate what you did and applaud for what you did and kind of revel in the thing you just went through felt a lot better than just boom, 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 get off. Right. And yes. So that kind of giving people time to appreciate what they're doing and kind of celebrate it seems meaningful and important to do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's transformative, but at least no, it's it is. Memorable, right. It's a, it's yeah. Speaking of the, that emotional, I was having a conversation with somebody at the summit where we were talking about how do you get that lump in the throat and where there's some attractions where you have, well, there's and, certain churros that'll do it, but Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> I, I think I, I kind of put it into two, two sort of categories with the entertainment. It's a whole lot easier to get to Mm -hmm. that right musical cue, that moment, that memory, that nostalgia, whatever it is where people can cry and watching fireworks and phantasmic and, and a big spectacle. I know you were doing it the other night, weren't you Adam at the electrical parade, man? I was was just uh, crying just because I'm so happy to see it again. Um, And and so there's that, but in an attraction, I, I find that that's, tougher to come by. And the one that we pointed at was the uh, moment in the um, uh, Secret Life of Pets, where mm. you're a dog in the ride, but at the end, you get adopted into a forever family. And that, and that 
was a moment where it's like, wait a minute, you just did something to my heart that's different than another attraction might be. I thought that was, I mean, they didn't send me into hell like, uh, uh, toad. <laughs> toad, but they it's a it's just a dark ride, but they gave me that moment of adoption and mm-hmm. care and love and which is hard to come by i think i think that's absolutely right and and if you can do that in a ride people really connect with that uh yeah. uh flight of passage same thing the, 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 yes. pandora, the pandora ride has that moment at the end where you see all of nature all spread out before you yeah, all the dragons flying and, and the whales leaping and it's just or whatever those things are and the, and you just go oh i did it you yeah. know we, we got somewhere and you feel like you've you've been part of something and not just a witness to something but you've you've made a journey and you've achieved something that's really hard really hard yeah. in our business we, you know, there's two, there's way too many of our things where we do this stuff by rote and we, and in our office, we always kid about, um, the, uh, uh, the recruits syndrome. Please don't ever put me on another ride saying, good job recruits. You did yeah. fine. It's such an easy <laughs> thing to do. Oh, you're a recruit. You have to help with the mission, get on this vehicle because the mission is requires you to get on a vehicle and ride around and watch us do something. And then we say at the end, good job recruits. That's yeah. not a real sense of achievement. That's sort of faux achievement. But if you can really feel like you've been, you've made a decision or you've pushed something in some way, or you've, or even if you've witnessed something really important, that can be okay too. But better if you feel like you've done it. That's the, yeah. that's real agency if you can make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. When we that's talked about, uh, well, I mean, maybe you could share a little bit because uh, we, you know, roped you into, uh, the first theme park you can play with the uh, Ubisoft universe and, and trying to, again, continually uh, bust out of the box of what uh, a traditional theme park genre, um, you know, that that's uh, there's there's opportunities and challenges there. And your team has certainly rose to the occasion in helping us figure that out. Yeah. Well, luckily, we have some amazing folks on our team who are uh, gamers and really into that stuff. Ba- Blue haired Baz, our brilliant senior creative director, is like really into the whole the whole thought process of gaming and understanding what gaming means and what it's like to try and interpret that into a real world and really collaborated well with your guys to try and like break that down and say, how do you, how do you play a game? And what does it mean? Not just to, you know, bop a thing and get a point, but actually achieve something over the course of the day or achieve something over the course of a ride that feels like a real accomplishment more than just collecting, you know, paper clips as you go around the park. Mm-hmm. It, you know. And that's, that, that's the hard part. It's, yeah, it's, it's easy to get just grab abstract points, but to do it for a reason or to uh, collect achievements and to make and to achieve things is way more interesting than just to collect things, right? So, yes. And that's, it's harder to, again, harder to do, but that's the fun is figuring out how to, how to do that <laughs> stuff so that it, so that you feel there. That, that's oh, yeah. <laughs> That's not him. That's that's the T one thousand Terminator himself. That <laughs> boy comes in a few minutes. They, um, <laughs> um, you'll hear him, I'm sure. They, uh, but yeah, though, that's a, a great example, Mel, because I think uh, getting the Ubisoft thing right will be hard every step of the way. But if you do it yeah. right, it will be so rewarding because people will feel like they really spent a day playing and being and doing and not just watching right and that's yeah that, that's the uh, that's the kind of the, the holy grail if you pull that off right 
that'd be just a marvelous thing to do. I feel and like that. It's going to be that. I feel like that experience is going to be something like a a good hike or whatever, where you come home happy, tired. Like you have really achieved something, but you've walked a lot and done a lot, and your brain has worked uh, quite a bit. It's gonna yeah. be it's gonna be very very cool. I think it has every chance of making it. You guys are gonna nail it, and uh, I hope we get to play with it too because it's gonna be fun. Gonna be cool. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. Well, well I, I, I wanted to hit you up on your thoughts on uh, a piece that you just wrote in terms of the future of the industry. Uh, you know, mm. I, I know we're both fans of Epcot. You know, and there's a there's a grand canvas and a scale and a, and an original vision there that uh, actually I'd love your, your take on kind of the, the newly revealed uh, images uh, you know, or I, I think uh, they just released some artwork this week of kind of a value engineered version of communicore uh, <laughs> <laughs> slash interventions. Um, but life. you know, love, love your take on the state of the park there, but also um, again, to elaborate on what your thought of kind of the, the, the new, um, small being big you know <laughs> mm. well on the on the epcot side i mean it's probably worth remembering that epcot itself was value engineered right it wasn't it what wound up opening in 1982 was not everything they had hoped to put on the stage they had to make tough choices then and they they got some and was, great and stuff even done. still it was only three or four hundred percent over budget <laughs> <laughs> right yeah right. so you know they, you don't you never get to do everything you want to do and so you know i hope that the stuff there that's expanding into epcot now is you know part of a process that will just keep growing and getting cooler i i am really excited to see the moana water thing i think that'll be yeah fun. me too and there's some other really cool stuff coming and the the uh the um the new thing the galactic the guardians, galactic, yeah. guardians yeah. Gar guardians galactic goo coaster looks really fun <laughs> and, and very cool um it looks great and it should have um, been the name galactic goo yeah. coaster i like right. it um no, but the the thing you're talking about is that in the last uh, one of the revelations that you get as you get to be an old fellow like me is you start realizing you spend an awful lot of time making other people and other companies very wealthy. And <laughs> in our <laughs> our business, one of the big differences between our business and the movie business is that you don't get royalties or residuals or a back end. You do your work and you go on to the next gig and go from job to job like you know, sharecroppers, like, you know, like Oklahoma sharecroppers. And, um, and the, uh, uh, I think everybody has always, you know, everybody I've ever known in the industry has said, well, someday we're going to build our own theme park. And I always thought, oh, come on, you will not, you know, building a theme park takes, well, except you are Mel, but I always <laughs> think that, but it takes big resources to build a theme park. And we always said, you know, everything we do takes, a hundred acres and a billion dollars to do you yeah. know, something really amazing. If you're lucky, it's a billion dollars. It might be two or three or five billion. And, and but what we've seen coming along, and and again, Mel, you are the exception who proves the rule because <laughs> you guys are making stuff that will be absolutely beautiful at at scale, and that's fantastic. Um, but I never sort of aspired, thought I could aspire to that. And when I looked at smaller stuff that was that would fit in a building. I thought Chuck E. Cheese, right? I thought that junk, you know, yeah. so FECs that, you know, with a bunch of video games. And I, that, I have nothing to con contribute there. That's not storytelling. That's just places to play. But in the last couple of years, we've seen some beautiful work happening in smaller spaces that's really exciting. <clears throat> and starting with like Meow Wolf, you know, and they built sure. that thing in, in Santa Fe for a 
a couple million dollars uh, of George Martin's money and, um, <laughs> and made art, made something beautiful and, and sort of bottomless. And you could fall into it and spend hours wandering through that place and being mesmerized by it. And how magical is it to be able to do something like that, just sort of by the skin of your teeth and the love in your heart and make something just really lovely that people can enjoy. And then we started seeing it with other things at different sizes, like um, Lost Spirits Distillery, which is right yes. near, was right near me in the arts district and now is in Las Vegas, where you get to go on a Willy Wonka boat ride through booze. How cool is that? Right. And, th and then you get to like take an experience that takes you into the world of, of distilling, but through, through the eyes of mad scientists and geniuses and artists that great or the, or the nest, which is the, that show that uh, the two guys from Imagineering made uh, just in their spare time and in their garage. And it's this tiny little experience. I don't know if you guys have been through the scene. I haven't. Uh, uh, big pitch for your listeners at home and you should come to LA and see it. It's a, it's a tiny experience for one or two people at a time. And it lasts one hour and it takes place in a space, the size of a garage. It's a couple wow. three, three, 400 square feet. And the whole story, the whole concept is that an obscure relative of yours has died and left you all her worldly belongings. And you're, going to go pick it up go into the storage unit where all her stuff is and you're going to find out about her life and the first thing you do when you open the storage unit is you find a an old cassette deck with a with a 1970s like cassette rec recording and you put it in and you hear this girl when she's five years old getting her dating this cassette deck from her dad and she starts recording things and she loves recording everything that goes on around her so throughout her life she has this cassette deck and you, wherever you go through this space you find little cassettes and you can hear the next moment in her life oh, that's awesome. she goes to school and then she goes to high school and then she falls in love with her first boyfriend and then she gets married and has kids and and each way each place you go you find these tiny little collections of stuff that actually make little scenes and you move from scene to scene and it's very touching and emotional you find these little pieces and there's puzzles that are kind of just woven into it so like you have to figure out the combination to her high school locker and when you get it open you can find pictures of the boy she fell in love with and eventually oh, marry and, and it's and it unfolds over time and it's moving and touching and beautiful and they did that for nothing just with their own passion and so we've started realizing that there is a huge opportunity now for beautiful work that any of us in this industry would be proud to do. It's not, you know, just video game junk. It's really, you can do lovely work in small spaces that can actually work as a business model and can entertain people in ways that theme, in the big theme parks can't. I mean, we love yeah. Disney and Universal and they're great, but that's a day-long commitment, a week-long commitment, an overnight, it's a ton of money. But what are you gonna do on Saturday for an afternoon when you just want something to do something for an hour or two? And I think there's a growing uh, generation of folks out there who don't necessarily wanna com commit whole days to, to things. They wanna do things in smaller bites, shorter attention spans. And if they can do something really cool for two hours and be affected by it and excited by it, great. So we're really super, interested in seeing where that goes and we're sort of actively pursuing things that are small and we realize that those are now things that we can aspire to do uh -huh. ourselves we can produce that doesn't require the kind of jillionaire money that you need we can do that stuff with either money that we raise on our own or raise through friends or there's a lot of ways to get there and put that kind of work into the world and we've decided we want to sort of split our our business into 
you know, half of it is continuing to do the work we love doing for our clients because that's great and that's fun. We love working with pals like Mel or Disney or whoever wants us. And, but the other half is really going to be creating these little things that are treasures of our own. And we don't think they compete with it or take anything away from our, our friends and colleagues, but they're just nifty things we can make and really love. And nobody can tell us no, or that it's too expensive or that, or that they don't get the story. We, it's up to us. We take the risk, we stick it out there and we, you know, see how it turns out. And we're really excited about doing that stuff this year. That's very cool. Well, that's small. That sounds amazing. As, as long as your wife is on the same page as you, Adam, and uh, (laughs) even while had Lily and Disney kind of griping about uh, her uh, flower. Yeah, honey. Right. Would you quit driving your train through my flowers? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I think Kristen will like it as long as, uh, as long as, um, I don't know, as long as she gets to go through it and and I don't scare her or jump out at her. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, thank you, cool. Adam. This has been a, a real treat. Really have enjoyed spending the hour with you. And uh, oh, you did it. You made, you it's did make an hour. hour. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and we're, we're, we're just thrilled to hang out with you and, and uh, have the opportunity to work from you with you and hear your story. Um, just been a real, real heart moment for me. I've loved uh, seeing you from afar and now get to call you friend too. So, <laughs> yeah, we are this close a camera away. <laughs> oh, this is great guys. Thank you for having me. It was really a blast. And, and I, I love doing anything with the, the Storyland gang and Freddie, you are awesome. And your tiki's are amazing as well. Oh, so, thank you. Thank you. Thank great, you. It's great to see you again, Mel. This is like four times this week. So I'm getting used to can, this, bro. <laughs> you can take tomorrow off. I promise. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great interview. Adam uh, really does make you feel like a friend. Um, there's something he said at the end there. Uh, that there's room in the industry for what he called beautiful work in small spaces that can entertain people in ways theme parks can't. That sounds like a cool challenge. Talk to me a little bit about how you think the challenge of bringing big ideas into small spaces can begin to change the way people these days think of themed entertainment. Well, you know, it's funny because it was at the roots of our industry, right, with uh, Walter Knott, Walt Disney, you know, to, yeah. to complement those big e-ticket people mover, you know, kind of people eater type attractions with these very uh, humble, I'm thinking of Mineral Hall, you know, I'm thinking of Sleepy Yeah, Man, right. <laughs> you know, when when you, uh, you know, when you look at quality versus quantity. That that yep. trade off is is so easy to make uh, if if you have the choice of not being a slave to two thousand hourly capa- you know hourly capacities yeah. uh, you know of of needing to to do this assembly line type experience that can eat the the crowd. So you know I know in in our case uh, both you and I and, and with Adam I mean when we actually get to to do these kind of things uh, I'll just give you an example um, I don't know if you you know the Kirks uh, they 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 were fresh off of Tokyo Disney Seas, the most epic, expensive theme park ever done. And they uh, got handed the keys to this humble little Parsonage House Museum uh, in Echo Park in L.A. for uh, for someone that was kind of a rock star back in Walt Disney's era named Amy Semple McPherson. She was this yeah, kind yeah. of amazing. And they did this amazing house museum with these magical little um, kind of uh, Pepper's Ghost shadow boxes. And again, 
you know, to be able to go through with just your family or a group of a dozen people to linger in this, this, this piece of old Hollywood that has basically been teleported into the 21st century. And then to, again, yes. step past as you look into these shadow boxes and see these kind of living uh, kind yeah. of uh, live acts, you know, through hologram. I, I mean, it's, it really is just wonderful. It's intimate. It's, it's powerful. And um, yeah, again, it's just one of those constraints, you know, you talk about the BSs of any project, budget, scope, schedule, and when you can take, uh, you know, aspects of the scope, again, in terms of capacity and throughput or, or size and, and really spend those same levels of energy and in some cases dollars on a smaller, lower uh, capacity space. Um, you know, again, I think a galactic star cruiser versus yeah. Galaxy's Edge, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it comes with a premium price, but it's definitely a much lower, more intimate, uh, personal experience right. so, yeah it is it is a fun horizon uh as people think of redefining not just the themed entertainment industry but just again experiential immersive um situations that we we can play in <laughs> that's awesome well uh let's wrap it up they tell me this this part of the river kind of uh <laughs> has been known to be swarming with animatronic sharks so uh Uh-oh. before we get that mayday call <laughs> <laughs> the what do you say we turn this boat toward home? The piranhas are eating well. <laughs> the piranhas. Yeah, we don't, we don't want those piranhas to come out, and especially not the mayday, mayday, there's a shark uh, calls coming to us. What do you say we turn this boat toward home? Yes, sir. All right. Until next time, thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. You know, we really do appreciate you. We want you to know we don't take your listening for granted, and we want to make a show that you like to come back to again and again and again. Would you mind helping us out by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify? That really helps others find the show and gives us the motivation to keep it on going. We want to thank our special guest, Adam Bezark of the Bezark Company. You can learn more about Adam and his incredible team of creators at bezark.com or connect with him on LinkedIn. Get access to new shows, stories, and interviews at themedattraction.com. Start your own profile, discuss the latest advancements, and interact with your fellow theme park designers around the world. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at Themed Attraction, and join our active discussion group on LinkedIn. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson, other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Barry is an author and publisher of beautiful books on theme parks, including Imagineering an American Dreamscape and a newly released coffee table book for Kings Island. Rivershore Creative can help you tell your own story, whether for your park, company, or as an industry expert. Need a podcast? They can do that too. Go to rivershorecreative.com to get started. You know, Mel, Barry and I were on safari the other day when our boat was attacked by a Burmese python. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but a python can grow up to 3.14159265 feet in length, which isn't very long, but no matter how you measure it, it still goes on and on and on and on and on. 
Thanks for listening, folks.